Hi, you're listening to the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. Personally, I think it is critical that individuals and institutions reflect upon how they have directly and indirectly contributed to historical and ongoing racism and injustice, as well as what they can and should be doing to advance equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. I know I have a lot of work to do in those regards. For example, currently, Dr. Lisa Linenbrink-Garcia and I are serving as co-editors of the journal Educational Psychologist, which is a product of Division 15 of the American Psychological Association. In the summer of 2020, the Division 15 Executive Committee asked Lisa and me to consider developing an online special issue of the journal, highlighting previously published articles relevant to race, racial justice, and equity. As we began to pull that special issue together, we realized there was a need for a critical review of the ways the journal has and has not addressed those issues, with the hope that such an analysis would also point toward ways to more effectively bring scholarship on those issues into the journal in the future. So we put out a call to members of the Educational Psychologist Editorial Board to conduct this critical analysis, and we were very pleased and grateful to have Drs. Rathi Kumar and Jessica DeQueer-Gumby volunteer for this important leadership. Their critical review is excellent and does a wonderful job of contextualizing, synthesizing, and problematizing the journal's efforts regarding race, racism, and social justice, and I'm excited to talk to them about that article today. Dr. Rathi Kumar is a professor of educational psychology at the University of Toledo. Over the past 25 years, she has examined the challenge that social inequality poses for the education and well-being of cultural minority and immigrant adolescents, and has explored how schools, administrators, and teachers can promote an environment in which all students grow intellectually, interpersonally, socially, and emotionally. The grant she has earned during her tenure at the University of Toledo and her intervention projects in urban schools reflect her commitment to issues of educational equity and social justice. The services she renders to her institution and her profession are deeply linked to issues of diversity, equity, and social justice. Currently, she serves as diversity liaison for the Judith Herb College of Education at the University of Toledo and is on the American Psychological Association's Division 15 Diversity Committee. In 2016, she was an invited Fulbright Specialist Scholar at the University of Haifa and the Oranum College of Education in Israel, and in 2019 was a visiting scholar with a teacher education program at Nanyang University in Singapore. At both institutions, she provided seminars on inclusive education, implicit and explicit biases, and intercultural and intergroup relationships. Dr. Jessica DeQueer-Gumby is a professor of educational psychology at the University of Southern California, Ross Ear School of Education. Formerly, she served as faculty at North Carolina State University for nearly 20 years. Her research interests include the impact of race and racial identity development on the educational experiences of African Americans, emotions and coping related to racism, critical race theory, and mixed methods research. She is an associate editor for the Review of Educational Research and currently serves on the editorial boards for Contemporary Educational Psychology and Educational Psychologist. She is a fellow of Division 15 of the American Psychological Association and is serving as vice president of the division. Today, we're talking about Ravi and Jessica's 2023 article in Educational Psychologist entitled, What is the Role of Race in Educational Psychology? A Review of Research in Educational Psychologist. So Ravi and Jessica, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having us. So let, let's start here. Why did you accept our invitation to write this article? What, what drew you to this task? I, I was really excited when I saw your call. I was very, very interested in doing this work. And I am so glad I volunteered 
One of the things that I was concerned about when I volunteered, and you may remember this, Jeff, mm -hmm. and that was I was concerned that as an immigrant, am I the right person to be doing this job? And mm -hmm. so I really wanted to collaborate with someone who I felt would also bring in a lot of strength as someone who has lived here and experienced life in the United States. And so it's been an absolutely wonderful experience working with Jessica on this project. But a couple of things about my experiences as an immigrant. Now coming to the United States was a culture shock. It was the first time I had stepped out of India. Coming here made me acutely conscious of who I was. I became aware of my cultural roots and now I understood what it feels like to be uncomfortable in one's own skin. So as an immigrant, certain questions consumed me. How do you relate to people when you feel so different? How do others relate to you? What is the role of culture in our lives? And how can we help children and adolescents who live in the contact zone of cultures? So as I was searching answers to these questions, I was somewhat disheartened to find that most educational psychology theories do not account for race or culture, nor do they examine racial and cultural issues substantively. So that was my first reason for wanting to write this piece. I wanted to examine more deeply what educational psychology research looked like in earlier times, and if there has been any shift in acknowledging and researching the role of race and culture in shaping individuals' experiences. Now, a second reason I wanted to write this piece was that, as an immigrant, I'm very aware of the less valued social status of immigrants. For this reason too, it was important for me to understand why educational psychology research has not focused on the lives and lived experiences of students from marginalized groups, such as Blacks and immigrants. Mm -hmm. Jessica, what about you? What about this call spoke to you? When I saw the call, I was really excited because I've been writing for a while about the lack of work on race in our journals or just in mm -hmm. our discussions in the divisions. And so I was just super excited to see that you and Lisa really wanted to have a discussion about it to really critically reflect upon the journal. And so my, I did have a concern because at the time I was serving as a department head at NC State, and, and I knew I didn't necessarily have a lot of time, but I knew this was a really important project that was near and dear to my heart that I really wanted to work on. And then, you know, there was some conversations we had, and, you know, so you, you said that Reverdy was interested in working on it, and would I be interested in working with Reverdy? And I got super excited because, you know, I hadn't worked with Reverdy before, but, you know, we had crossed paths, and, you know, we had been on panels together like at a year a and you know we just presented together and we just always cross paths because our work is kind of similar and so just to have the opportunity to work with Revity, i was super excited about that so you know i think you know having the opportunity to work with Revity and then work on this really important article that's really necessary and i feel which is something i just couldn't pass up well we're really grateful that you both found the time took the time and and had the energy to do so and i really want to get into kind of what you found and those themes that you inferred from your work before we get there i think it's always helpful just to briefly kind of talk about how you found the articles and your search process and we don't need a lot of like you know deep detail on the methodology but i mean what was it like searching the literature and, and how did you figure out the kinds of articles that you thought should be included in your review? I think both of us 
Before we started the search, we said, what are the kind of articles we want to review? And one of the decisions that we both made together was that it has to deal substantively with issues of race and race-related issues like social Mm -hmm. justice and equity and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so keeping that in mind, that is what then took us back to searching through the journal for articles that address these issues substantively. Mm -hmm. So that was the first step. Right. And, and I think to follow up with that, there are a lot of articles that may talk about race, maybe like in a paragraph. And so we didn't want to include those type of articles because they weren't necessarily looking at race or equity issues in a, what we would consider a very substantive way of looking at race as a construct. Uh, race mm-hmm. and equity issues were more like a, a side issue. We wanted articles that were had race and equity issues that were front and center, that, that were the core concentration of the articles. Yeah. And- one more point, there were articles that that looked at race or ethnicity, but they treated race and ethnicity as categorical variables. So they were, it was just between group differences. We couldn't get at the meat of why, why do these differences exist or what are the mechanisms within each group that inform all these psychological and other processes. So that was the other thing, that if an article treated race is just a categorical variable. We did not include those articles. Yeah. And, and that strikes me as really important and, and a commentary upon, you know, problems with the journal, right? I, I think you didn't find a lot of articles, which is another problem, right? Only 3.2% of the articles published between 1963 and 2022 ended up kind of meeting your criteria for substantive engagement with these issues. And I think some of the ones that you excluded, Rithi, as you said, were ones that treated race in this kind of very light, surface-level, homogenous kind of way um, that you identified. And that that is a finding, right? That's, that's something important for the journal and us as editors and the field to wrestle with, that even when race is addressed in these articles, sometimes it's addressed in a surface-level and not very helpful way. So I, I'm even grateful for that piece of it, just to expose that piece of things that we need to work on. And Jeff, we did several literature searches because we wanted to make sure that we found every article that met our criteria. And I think, you know, we did it to be thorough, and especially Revity, and Revity did it several times more. But I think it's to be thorough, but I think part of it was because on some level, we knew there were a limited amount of articles. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, we were still a bit astonished once we actually saw the count as to how few articles Mm -hmm. there were that kind of fit the criteria. So we were like, this just can't be. I know there's not a lot. But mm. there still has to be more than mm. this. And so so part of it, you know, we wanted to, we, we checked and we double checked and revenue triple checked just to make sure the numbers were correct. And we just, it just wasn't there. Yeah. True. Actually, we identified about 124, I think, articles. And we took quite some time going through articles and saying, okay, does this meet the criteria? Does it not? And so we were really careful that we did not exclude articles that should rightly be included in our review. No, and I appreciate that. I mean, you put a lot of work in and I wish you had found more. It's unfortunate that that wasn't there. But again, one of the purposes of asking you to write this article and and bringing this special issue together is to hopefully communicate to scholars and researchers that we do want those kinds of articles. We do want articles dealing with race and racism and social justice and anti-racism. And so hopefully by finding those gaps, we can recognize them, understand them, and then hopefully do something about them. So thank you for even just that and your thorough work in it. So you identified kind of four major themes 
in your review of the articles you did include in your critical analysis. And, you know, we don't have time to go deeply into each of them. I really encourage our listeners to get your article and read it and think about it, reflect upon it. But let's let's just talk briefly about each one. So the first theme that you identified was an evolving conceptualization of race, ethnicity, and culture, moving from kind of a deficit to an asset-oriented perspective. Can you say a bit about that kind of change over time and what you found? Yes. I think what was important here, and this goes back to your previous comment about, you know, uh, we need to do a better job. I would just like to add that if we look over time, we have been improving. We could do that faster. For example, Mm -hmm. when we said, how do people look at race, ethnicity and other race related issues? The very first article that we reviewed, that was the 1983 article, where it was just in semantics. And the notion was that if we were to just use terms that are appropriate and we don't use race and instead use ethnicity, we would stop perpetuating racism. And and we've come such a long way from there, Mm -hmm. I think, because, for example, Jagers, in his article, he actually defines educational equity and says, what what is it that we need to do to meet the needs of every student, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And And so over time, I would say that we have moved away from simplistic notions of race and ethnicity to taking a more contextualized and situated look at Mm -hmm. race, at social justice and what it means to be in a culturally diverse context. Of course, Mm -hmm. we can do more of that, but we have shifted in the positive direction. So that's really important to highlight. And I'm glad that you feel like that is happening. And, you know, when I look at the articles in educational psychologists, particularly more recent ones, I mean, the articles that are moving us in that direction, many of them are, are written by each of you. So, so thank you for that. And I, it's clear we have more work to do, but I'm glad that we're trending in a positive direction. So a different theme that you identified that it struck me was maybe... Well, to me, it was a little disappointing that you didn't find more in this area was kind of how the field has discussed psychological processes and their racialized nature. So what did you find when you looked at the literature regarding those processes? Well, I think it's really important for Riverdale and I to step back that with the 31 articles, it was really tough for us to find, like, you know, major themes because when you have only 31 articles, it's really hard to find trends. But within psychological processes, I think it's important to to note that almost all the articles we found really did look at some psychological construct. And so we could have made all of the articles talk about this one big theme of psychological processes and talk about some construct. And so we started to see a lot of people did talk about a stereotype threat or belonging Mm -hmm. or some type of motivation construct. So in in creating this particular section, you know, there were a lot of people who we saw a lot, you know, Sandra Graham, um, Mm -hmm. Margaret Bill Spencer, um, and Mm -hmm. their researchers who we tend to see all the time um, doing this work, which made it a little difficult. But what I want to get at in this particular section is that there is a limited amount of constructs that we actually tend to focus on in viewing issues of race and equity within this journal. 
Okay, so th- that that's helpful. So you're correct. I mean, the journal's entitled Educational Psychologist. So of course, there's discussion of psychological processes. But I think what you're saying is that there may be a limited number of those processes addressed. And it would be nice if it was expanded to include more psychological processes, different kinds of psychological processes, and how they interact with and manifest with race, racism, social justice, inclusion, etc. Is that an accurate way of describing what you found? Yeah, I mean that, that's exactly what you know we're saying is that you mm-hmm. know there, I mean there's so many different, for instance, motivation constructs, for instance, yeah. that you know we could easily talk about, but in particular mm-hmm. being highlighted in the journal, you know it's just not there in terms of taking it from a racial lens or looking at issues of equity. That work has not been published in the journal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would like to add something to that mm-hmm. because what struck me, even as we were looking at these psychological processes, because we also had a section on the historical overview of race-related education events mm-hmm. in the country, mm-hmm. in the United States in particular. Mm-hmm. And there were so many things that were going on, even the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, the civil rights and voting rights and so forth, and all the other things that happened during that time. It was interesting to see that even when we talked about psychological processes, we never connected them back to those historical events that were taking place. And that to me was a little surprising and maybe not surprising when we think of the roots of educational psychology, but it was still, we did not account for those things when we talked about the psychological processes. Yeah, I mean, we did a short history, but, you know, we did a huge historical account in some of our earlier drafts. I mean, there had been a lot of things in history with good racial educational implications. And, you know, none of that appeared in the journal. I mean, I'm just thinking the ebonics debates, some of mm-hmm. bilingual discussions, and, you know, very little of that has shown up in the journal. And so we're just trying to understand why, you know, all this stuff was going on in history, but it's almost like the field didn't keep up with what was going historically, at least in terms of race-related work. Yeah. And, you know, the field has been criticized in the past for not paying attention to the greater world, right? I think psychology is a broad field and educational psychology at times gets very focused on what's happening within individual people's minds. And it's difficult to talk about race or, you know, Jessica, as you and Paul Schutz have talked about race-focused or race-reimaged work. It's difficult to talk about that if you're not willing to pay attention to the broader context and things going on in the world. So it seems like that's been a problem for the field. Field that has had lots of negative effects upon the field, one of them being a lack of attention to all the issues you identified in your review. I'm not sure if this is the right thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyhow, mm-hmm. because I said I was not as surprised, because as I was looking at articles, I kept going back right to 1963 and looking at all the issues in the in the journal. Mm-hmm. And I found this 1975 article by Arthur Jensen, mm-hmm. where he was still trying to make an argument that there are racial differences in intelligence. And this was in 1975 after the civil rights movement, after all mm-hmm. those things. So I'm wondering if this could have been, to some extent, intentional, that you mm-hmm. don't take those into account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think Reverdy brings up a good point. When you have a field that was kind of founded by, you know, Thorndike, and then, you know, you have someone like Arthur Jensen who played a big role in some of the early work in the journal. I mean, what do you expect in terms of the kind of the work that's there or right. not there? Right, yep. And I think, you know, we, we're going to have to grapple with that that history. Um, I know there mm-hmm. was a recent article just published, you know, it's on my to-do list to read, that's mm-hmm. really getting at the, the racist roots of the field. 
So I think yep. researchers in the field are starting to ask some of those critical questions and starting to really kind of see as to why the field is structured the way it is, you know, because of the history, not just educational psychologists, but all of the journals in educational psychology and just kind of our textbooks and mm-hmm. how it has shaped everything that we, we do and then the theories that we have. Yep. And, you know, uh, Jessica, on that note, I, when we were writing this paper, it got me really curious. So I, I know that as a graduate student, I did not study the history of educational psychology. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about cognitive revolution, but I really never discussed the roots of educational psychology. And I think it is an injustice to our graduate students. It's yeah, an in, yeah. injustice to our field if we don't do that, because unless we know that, we cannot shift gear. We cannot move in the right direction if we don't know where we started. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, too, doing this project was so immensely important for me to learn about the roots, to understand what it was like and why it took us so much time. I, I think all of that is critically important, and I'm so glad that you brought it up. And I think you're absolutely correct. You know, there may be structural uh, reasons why race and racism weren't prominent in the journal, but it's very difficult to imagine that it wasn't also the case that there were people actively working against talking about those issues in the journal for all the reasons that you stated. So until we reconcile with that and understand it better and start really, as you said, teaching it to our students and embracing it ourselves, it's going to be difficult to imagine the field moving forward in a really positive way, at least in the most effective and powerful way. So your article brings that to the forefront, and I'm really glad that you did. And I'm glad that you brought it up here because I do think it's really important to surface it. And your article talks about these cultural, contextual, and structural factors as another aspect of the review that you did and another theme that you found. A fourth theme that you found was about methodological and theoretical approaches. And I think maybe some people at first might wonder what methodology has to do with race and racism, but actually it has a lot to do with that, as you point out. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you found regarding methodology and theory and how it relates to the way the journal has and has not engaged with races and racism? Sure. This section really talks about how we need to expand the methodology that we use in the field. You know, as educational psychologists, we tend to focus more from a quantitative perspective, you know, the post-positive perspective. And a lot of the articles we're focused on, but this article really talked about how we need to take more culturally relevant approaches where that's kind of really centered on marginalized groups that maybe use qualitative methods or, or mixed methodology that really take the researcher's positionality into account, something mm-hmm. that, you know, traditional quantitative methodology doesn't necessarily do. You know, we need to focus on interventions to focus more so on in-group variability rather than doing between-group comparisons mm-hmm. that, you mm-hmm. know, we traditionally do in research. So really taking the cultural relevant approach to research, you know, something that isn't necessarily something that we often do in our field. And, you know, I think if we change our methods, the kind of research questions that we ask and the, the methods that we use and our means of analyses, that would totally change our findings and the kind of research that we have. And then in time, change the kind of articles that we produce. Also, 
using critical lenses to actually analyze our work. You know, we tend to not do critical type of research. And I think that's really important for us to do. But also the, the kind of theories that we use and teach. I think it gets back to what Reverdy talked about, how in graduate schools, we don't often teach our students a variety of theories. You know, we, we stick to kind of the canon and how we need to expand the work that we do using more interdisciplinary kind of work. You know, maybe it's like theories don't necessarily give us everything we need. We can pull from sociology, anthropology, or other fields so that we can give our students a more well-rounded you know, a view of what they need. Or if you can't teach it yourself, let them take classes somewhere else so they can get that information. But to do more theory building so that they can have more culturally relevant theories in the field to apply to their work. So um, there's a lot of different things that we can do methodologically so that we can get a more robust methodology that we can use to answer some of the research questions we have in our field. Mm I would just like to emphasize one of the things that you said, Jessica, because I think that's been a really important shift in our field. That is thinking about our positionality as a researcher and our stance on all these issues. I think there is more and more emphasis on that. And that, I think, would really help us to understand what are the underlying mechanisms, the differences and the shared commonalities across ethnic and cultural groups. Mm-hmm. So I think positionality is particularly important. And more recently, I was thinking about it. And when you talk about researcher positionality, also, as a researcher, that too, if you're from the marginalized groups, is your voice being given sufficient credibility? Are you being heard? I think all those things we need to consider in our field as we move ahead, particularly mm-hmm. with what whose research is published and whose voice receives prominence and so forth. And so I think those are all considerations as we move forward. Well, that's really helpful. And your article illustrates so well the importance and power of culturally relevant and critical methods. And they really do, as you said, help us better understand within-group variability. And that's incredibly important. As you talked about earlier, we don't want to think about race in just terms of kind of categories. We want to really understand nuance and differences within groups as well as across groups. And I really liked what you said about expanding the theory canon. So there's a lot we can learn from anthropology, sociology, et cetera, that will make our theories more culturally relevant. And Jessica, you certainly talked quite a bit about that. And Raythea, I really like what you added regarding researcher positionality and how it not only helps us better understand where authors are coming from, but it does give us more information to better interrogate whose voices are being heard, which ones are being lifted up, which ones are not. And those are important issues that the field needs to think about too. And I think using positionality statements and other kinds of field-wide reflections can really help us understand what we are losing by not having everyone at the table and having everyone's voices heard. And Jessica, as you said, I mean, we lose a lot by not using culturally relevant and critical methods and bringing different theories. The field will be better when we incorporate all these ideas. And so thank you for your suggestions. I really encourage our readers to get your article, read through the themes, you know, connect those themes to the historical context both of you provided, and then really interrogate those gaps. And I know that as a journal, uh, we'll be doing the same thing um, because we want to try to understand where we've been and Uh, move forward in a positive direction. And you can't do that unless you kind of know what you've been doing, what the field has been doing, and where we need to go next. Well, Jeff, I do want to add, I mean, we're not saying you can't use quantitative methods. We just also just kind of say in addition to, or even with your quantitative Mm -hmm. methods, make sure to kind of 
ask critical questions with those methods or even when you get your results. Ask critical questions about your findings, particularly if you're doing comparison between groups, what do they really need and making connections with the theories that you're using. Were those theories even used with in marginalized groups and are you making decisions about marginalized groups you know mm-hmm. was your study designed in a culturally relevant way i mean asking those types of questions and so i mean so there's nothing wrong with using quantitative methods and so we're just trying to actually get you to kind of step back and think more broadly about how you're using those quantitative methods well said absolutely yep so that sounds like something that the field of educational psychology needs to do better or think more deeply about kind of the methods used and the theoretical frameworks you had a number of recommendations for the field beyond that we don't have to talk about all of them but is there a particular recommendation that seems really salient to you that you wanted to share with our listeners as they think about what they can do in the future to better address these issues i think there's one word that keeps coming to my mind and that is being intentional Mm-hmm. And when we do any kind of research, when we are working with different groups of students or groups of people, we have to be, one, intentional. And second, I think we need to approach our work with a certain level of humility. Mm-hmm. And particularly when we are trying to do work with people where there is a cultural difference, going in there with an open, when I say open mind, it's being non-judgmental and then really listening, mm-hmm. listening to what people need, what they say, and then that should inform our research, I think. So being very intentional about it is, I think, important. For me, I think, you know, I know a lot of people don't necessarily like to be political, but I think, you know, the world in which we live in, everything is becoming political. Mm-hmm. And we have to make sure that we respond to what's going on in the world around us. Mm-hmm. I mean, now we're in this interesting space where anything that pertains to race and bias training or, you know, prejudice, anything you bring up, discrimination in schools are labeled widely as, quote unquote, critical race theory and it's seen as being dubbed by a lot of people as bad. And, mm-hmm. you know, so we can't just sit on the sidelines and just kind of say, oh, it's all going to blow over and we're just going to wait. We don't have that luxury. We have to be willing to stand up for things. And if we see misinformation, we need to correct it. You know, we see pseudoscience, we need to, to correct it. So much damage is going to be done to education if we just sit on the sidelines. I just saw that, for instance, in Florida, they have decided that they're going to reject AP African-American studies. And mm-hmm. one reason they said is that African-American studies significantly lacks any educational value. Mm-hmm. African-American studies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we let one thing slide and this thing, you know, something else is going to happen and right. it'll go to a variety of different contexts. And so we have to be willing not only to do this research that we put in journals, we have to be willing to go and advocate for these positions. And I know that's not necessarily a comfortable place that we want to be. You know, I don't necessarily know how to translate this work to policy, but we're in a space where we don't necessarily have the luxury anymore to just sit in our offices and tap up our papers and go present at our conferences. You know, we have to take it to the next level because Mm -hmm. children's lives are at stake. Our education mm-hmm. systems are at stake because of some mm-hmm. of the decisions are being made. I mean, but it's not just race work. It's about a lot of different things. I mean, how many times are there math programs being implemented in schools or reading programs being implemented in schools that we as researchers like shaking our heads up because we know they're just terrible, they're wrong, they're not research-based. But yet mm-hmm. we just sit back on the sides and say nothing. So we, we can no longer keep doing that. Mm-hmm. We have to go out and we have to advocate for what we know the research says and the science says. Mm-hmm. 
Actually, uh, Jessica, I think that's a fantastic point. And I think you're right. Writing research papers is not enough. How does that translate into policy? And one of the good things is now we actually have a journal that is addressing specifically these policies. But I think we have to be, again, really thoughtful about it and make sure that our voices are heard. Just on a more positive note, one of the things that I've noticed in our field, which really makes me happy, and that is, you know, when I look at a lot of our new scholars and students who are coming up, there is a shifting tide. There is Mm -hmm. this notion of wanting to do this kind of research, gaining momentum. And I think that bodes really well for our field of educational psychology. I agree. And, and Jessica, that was incredibly well said. And, and Rithi, I think you're correct. And I know that our students that I work with are eager for this kind of work and your article provides them with exactly what they're looking for. And I don't think we will be as effective you know, in terms of policy and advocacy without understanding our own history and without having a sense of where we've been, where we need to go. And your article really does a fantastic job of that. So again, thank you so much for accepting the opportunity to write this article and doing such a wonderful job with it. It's, it's a really important contribution, and I'm excited for everyone listening to give it a read. So what are the next steps for the field? What do you see evolving in the field? And what do we need to do to better prepare our early career scholars to continue that movement? I just feel good about the direction that the field as a whole is moving and that people care enough to talk about this. I felt as though I was a lone voice in the 1990s when I was trying to do all this work on cultural dissonance and so forth. And now suddenly I have all these colleagues I can talk to and interact with and work with. So this shift has been very positive for me as a scholar and as a researcher, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with Revely. I mean, it seemed like very lonely for a long time. It's really hard trying to publish your work in mm-hmm. the journals when you really weren't publishing that kind of work. I don't know if they didn't necessarily want to publish that work or they just didn't necessarily have the reviewers to review the work. So, you know, it was kind of a double-edged sword there. And so it's really great to see that there's so much momentum in the field to really be encouraging so many people are really interested in doing this work. Even if they're not doing the work themselves, they're interested in seeing the work. They're mm-hmm. interested in reading about the work and maybe the promoting in their courses and then in, in, in this new group of scholars that are interested in actually doing the work. But one thing we didn't talk about, well, we may have mentioned a little bit, but I definitely think, you know, we need to see a revamping of the way we train our students because I think, you know, we can talk about, yeah, we have these new group of scholars doing this work, but we're still training our students in the traditional way. And so mm-hmm. we need to think about how do we train our students in a way that they get everything that they need in terms of get, get all the methodology they need, but also get the theory and all the tools they need to be able to ask the kind of questions to do the kind of research that Reverend and I are advocating for. So how do we change those textbooks and how do we change the canon so they can get some different type of readings? I mean, those are the kind of conversations we need to start having as a field. So how do we race and culturalize the field of educational psychology. I mean, I think that's our next step that we need to think about as a field. 
Well, I know the students I work with are eager for the kind of work you expose and advocate for in this article. And I've been pleased to see, you know, kind of an upward trend in submissions and publications on race and racism more recently. I mean, it's not happening as quickly as I might hope, and I wish it had started sooner or earlier, but I'm, I'm encouraged by what I see now. So again, thank you for your work on what educational psychologists has and has not done in the past and where we can go in the future. So let's shift just a little bit. Uh, you know, people who listen to this podcast often are wondering, you know, whether or how to write an article for educational psychologists. So I always like to ask our authors who have been so successful at it, you know, do you have any tips or any suggestions for people who are thinking about writing a manuscript for educational psychologist? It requires dedication, hard work, and re revisions, and, uh, <laughs> and support from wonderful editors like you. No, that's nice. so, yeah, it, it really does. It is a, it's not like writing an empirical piece. Mm -hmm. This is a lot harder and uh, requires a lot of thought, but it is really a rewarding experience. Mm, great. Yeah, I would agree with everything. But I also think having an idea that's broad enough that I think it reach multiple audiences, I think mm. is really important. And you're going to have to dig in the literature a lot. You know, you're going to have to go yeah. in and really come up with some kind of conceptual idea and then, you know, be willing to dig deep and think about things and, and make a lot of different kind of connections. And mm -hmm. what I really like about this journal and kind of the articles you can write, it really gets you to kind of make connections about kind of what has happened in the past, what's going on. And then a really good section about really what we think should happen in the future. I think yep. it gives you the opportunity to think about kind of conceptually and theoretically, where do we need to go as yep. a field? That's mm -hmm. where I think a lot of the really good work happens. You know, how do we encourage other scholars to pick up the torch and do the next round of research? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you both. You know, it's it's hard work and requires, you know, dedication and diligence to really dive into literature and understand what's there. But then, Jessica, as you said, it also requires producing something that is generative, that advances theory and kind of points to new directions. And I think that work, you know, I believe in my heart that scholars can do that work. It might feel a little unfamiliar and it's hard. Let's, let's not kid ourselves, but it's important work. And I think your article can be a good example for others who are looking to do the kind of work that we get published in our journal. Speaking of scholarship, I'm always interested in what our authors are doing outside of papers they were educational psychologists. So what are you working on right now that you're really excited about? Well, I think it is Jessica who wrote me into this, but I am reading so much on epistemic freedom and epistemic justice, and it's absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, I've always felt that interdisciplinary work is important. Mm -hmm. And just as I was delving into culturally responsive teaching and so forth, now I'm finding this whole body of philosophical literature that is taking me into new ways of thinking about these issues. Mm -hmm. So that's where I am right now. Great. Yeah, well, you know, I, of course, I just moved to a new institution. So, you know, I'm trying to get my bearings here. But I mm -hmm. am beginning to kind of work on creating a new study. So I have been doing some work on racial microaggressions and emotions and coping. And so I kind of want to extend that work. So I want to mm -hmm. kind of look at students' mm -hmm. experiences with race in the classroom and more mm -hmm. so how parents handle their kids' racialized experiences in the classroom. So racism-related stress is really difficult for African-Americans to deal with and understand, particularly children. And so the study is going to really help parents to, to better 
help their children to deal with the racism related stress that they are dealing with in schools, but then also mm-hmm. help them themselves because it's difficult if your children are experiencing racism related stress. And then, you know, and you're dealing with the racism related stress because your child is having issues in schools. And so mm-hmm. we're really going to focus more so on the parents and how they negotiate that whole process and teaching them how to better advocate for their children in school. Well, really fascinating and important work by both of you. So I, I look forward to the scholarship that results. It sounds like really wonderful work. So thank you. So that seems like a great place to wrap up for today. I really encourage our listeners to check out Raythe and Jessica's 2023 article in Educational Psychologist entitled, What is the Role of Race in Educational Psychology? A Review of Research in Educational Psychologist. Again, thank you both so much for your hard work on the article and for talking to me about it today. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Finally, to you, our listener, if you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to check out our other episodes on your favorite podcast app, and please consider rating and reviewing these podcasts. You can also go to our APA Division 15 website where all of our podcasts are linked in the publications section. So thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.